Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. It was originally broadcast on November 20th in the year 2017. It's a Boomer Boulevard show, and I hope you enjoy It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. It's blowing. It is really blowing out there. I would hate to uh, be walking a little Pekingese. <laughs> he, he would become a kite. Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. Chester and I were just talking about the wind outside. My goodness gracious. It must be blowing 60, 70 miles an hour. I mean to tell you. And it just, you know, that... Oh, constantly, constantly. Just it sounds like a it sounds like the end of the world out there, doesn't it, Chester? You have everything battened down. You don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Well, listen. Welcome, welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the program where we play old time radio shows that you will actually remember from when you were a kid if you're a baby boomer. And that's because most of these shows came from the 50s and even the early 60s. And we remember them because we were kids then. And a lot of these shows we might remember from television in their later incarnations, but chances are many of us heard them on the radio. And we've got a good lineup tonight. We have an episode of Nightbeat with Frank Lovejoy, an actor we all remember from when we were kids. And then we're going to take a little turn and not have a comedy corner tonight. We'll talk about what we're going to replace that with. Uh, when the time comes. But in the meantime, we're also going to have an episode of Gunsmoke to finish off the show. So we've got a great lineup tonight. I hope that you're nice and warm where you are and secure inside. I would recommend you go get yourself something warm to drink. Sit down in that big comfy chair in front of the fireplace. Put your feet up on the ottoman and just relax because we're going to get started in just a moment.
We played an episode of Night Beat. I think it was, oh, maybe last month, maybe the month before. It was one that featured William Conrad as the escaped convict, you might remember. Anyway, that episode generated a lot of mail saying that was so good and could we play some more Night Beat. So that's what I'm going to do tonight. We're going to play an episode that was first broadcast on February the 13th in 1950. And it's entitled Night is a Weapon. This is a pretty good episode. Frank Lovejoy is really good in this. Uh, just to tell you a little bit about Nightbeat, this show, when they first conceived it, I guess it was around 1950, this is one of the first episodes. They ended up doing, I think it was 123 episodes of Nightbeat, and there's something like 81 of them available. And not all of them are in good quality sound, so I'm kind of selective in what I play. But originally, when they first did a pilot for this, it was Edmund O'Brien who they had that was going to play Lucky Stone. They later changed it to Randy, thankfully. Lucky's just a little too, I don't know, just a little too cliche-ish. Back then, there was censorship on radios and, and on a lot of the crime programs. If they felt that the, that the show was too adult in theme, the network was forced to show, or the individual radio stations around the country were forced to play it at a later hour. Like, for instance, after 9.30 at night. Well, advertisers didn't like that. They wanted to have uh, shows on in the early hour because there's larger listenerships. Well, when Edmund O'Brien originally did the pilot for this, the, the censors, you know, labeled this as an adult show, and it had to be played after 9.30. Well, they went back and did another pilot with Frank Lovejoy. If I understand this right, and I could be wrong about this, I think it was the same script. But Frank Lovejoy just had a, um, a compassionate tone to his voice. And that's one of the things that makes this show so good. He's a tough beat writer, and he goes out and covers a lot of uh, stories of the night. Let's face it, many of them are not going to be happy stories, and sometimes they're sleazy, and sometimes they're filled with criminals. But Lovejoy had a lot of compassion for these people and tried to put a human spin on the stories. And that made the difference with the censors. And so they allowed Nightbeat to be played at an earlier hour. So that's kind of the story there. So Frank Lovejoy got a lot of critical praise for his role. And one of the things that was mentioned over and over again was the heart that he brought to this character of Randy Stone. All right, let's go back to February of 1950 for this episode of Nightbeat entitled Night is a Weapon. Beat. Hi, this is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Stories start in many different ways. But tonight's story began when one man tried to destroy another with the strangest weapon of all, darkness.
Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. When your job is to walk into the darkness and discover what makes a city tick, you pick up some mighty strange friends. The winos dreaming of a muscatel paradise in cold, dark doorways. The petty larceny boys with their fast deals. The painted little dames defying the world with their brassy laughter. The homeless, the hopeless. In the city, night is for the lost. And sometimes you feel a hunger to be with someone of the everyday world. Some nice, well-adjusted soul who's got a reason for waking up tomorrow morning. I guess that's why I dropped in to see Bessie Chadfield tonight. Bessie's a little gray-haired librarian who has charge of a small storefront library on Huron Street. No one around this time of night but Bessie and a young fellow in a gray raincoat alone at a reading table. Mr. Stone, well, we haven't seen you, oh, in such a long time. (laughs) Well, since Forever Amber, you haven't had the kind of high-type literature that interests me. (laughs) And when you finally do drop in, look what time you get here. Ten o'clock. Right when I have to go over and start turning out the lights. I, uh, I timed it that way so I could get you behind those bookcases, uh, away from that fellow with the reading desk. Well, I'm afraid your timing is about 35 years off, Mr. Stone. <laughs> oh, these light switches. Why do they always put them up so high? Aren't you going to tell that fellow it's time to go home? This is the way we tell them. We flick off the lights and then flick them on again. First off... Like this. No! Don't do that! No! What? Turn the lights on quick. Let me handle him. What's the idea of doing that, mister? That's supposed to be smarter, so... Oh, take it easy, fella. Take it easy. Or did he pay you to do it? Is that the deal? Huh? You tell George Brewster that the game doesn't amuse me anymore. You tell him if he keeps that up, I'll... I'll kill him. Oh, wait. I turned the lights out. It's closing time. What? Closing time? Oh. Yes, of course. What's wrong with you, buddy? You sick or something? Sick. Sick, yes, that's me, sick. Only mine's a childhood disease. Childhood. Childhood. No, what in the world was that? I don't know. Ever seen him before? He's come in a couple of times this week. Spent all his time reading some reference books at the table. Seemed to be such a nice, polite young man. Considerate, kindly. Let's take a look at those books. Oh, my heavens, my... My heart is beating a mile a minute. And did you see his face? It frightened me. He was even more scared than we were. Of what? These are books he was reading? Yes. The Mind in Limbo, Abnormal Psychology, Modern Psychiatry. Why would he want books like this? Maybe he was looking for somebody in these books. Who? Himself, Bessie. Probably himself. Bessie was pretty upset, so after she locked up for the night, I started walking her toward the elevated station over on Lake Street. We'd walked a couple of blocks through the dark, empty streets when suddenly Bessie grabbed my arm. Mr. Stone, that man down the street, looking in that store window, Hmm? that's him. Ah, yes, same gray raincoat, same lad. And look, Mr. Stone, what's that in his hand? That's a piece of pipe or something. He's breaking that store window. Yeah, you wait right here, honey. Be careful, Mr. Stone, be careful. The fellow was reaching through the broken window glass for whatever it was that had struck his fancy. He heard me coming and turned toward me. The wan streetlight did something to his face. It seemed twisted and torn. Blood was running down his hand where the glass had cut it. 
Then I saw what he'd taken from the window. A gun. That's the idea, pal. He spun around and started running for the elevated station down the block. And in the best tradition of the Rover boys, I stayed right on his tail. He turned back to see how I was doing, and he stumbled over a trash can near the curb. I caught up with him, grabbing his arm. Let go of me. Leave me alone. Uh-uh. Let go of me. <laughs> he slashed the gun across my face and began running again. I stopped long enough to take a quick inventory of my teeth. Up above, I heard the elevator train coming into the station. The young fellow had reached the station steps and was going up fast, trying to make that train. I reached for one of his legs. He turned and gave it to me right in the stomach. I folded up, and I just sat there. I listened to the train pull away with the fellow on it and remembered what Bessie had said about him being such a nice, polite young man. After a while, I began to feel somewhat human again. I notified the police what had happened, and they sent a squad car out. After they left, I remembered something, a name this nice, polite young man had been throwing around, George Brewster. I found a phone book in a cigar store. There were three George Brewsters. The first number didn't answer. I tried the second. I'd like to speak to George Brewster. Oh, he's not in right now. Is there any message? Uh, who is this? I'm his sister. Is anything wrong? Well, if this is the right George Brewster, something is wrong. Is there any reason why a young fellow should want to kill your brother? Oh. Oh, that would be Morrison. Oh, I've warned George. Morrison, huh? Tom Morrison. Uh, where does he live? Our old apartment, 612 Hamlin Avenue. What makes you think he wants to kill George? Well, this uh, character broke into a store tonight and stole a gun. I sort of think he had your brother in mind when he did it. Oh. Going to do. Well, lady, I know what I'm going to do. As fast as I hang up and get another nickel into this phone, I'm going to call the police. Oh, I feel so bad. It's not really Morrison's fault, poor man. Oh, no, no. He's, uh, he's just a prince of a fellow. Uh, goodbye, lady. I've got to make a call. But then it turned out that I didn't have a nickel. And on the way to the counter for change, I started wondering why the sister of the man he was going to kill felt sorry for Morrison. And why Bessie thought he was such a sweet character. And, well, the night was young and 612 Hamlin Avenue couldn't wait. And I could call the cops later. <laughs> 612 North Hamlin was a second floor flat on the north side. I got there a few minutes after 11 that night. All the windows were lit up. I rang the bell and I waited I felt a little bead of sweat zigzagging down my face like it didn't have any place to go. Yes? Oh, it's you. No, no, let's not close the door just yet. In fact, let's push it open all the way. Oh. What do you want? My two front teeth and a few ribs. Get out of here. Now, look, pal, don't tempt me. They came against my better judgment to listen to what you've got to say. If I leave now, the only place I'm going is the nearest police station. Police station? I guess maybe that would be the best. What? Otherwise, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I guess you better call the police, mister. What do you think you're doing, calling my bluff? The phone's right behind you. Okay, buddy, you asked for it. Sure this is the way you want it? It's better this way. I'm at the end of my rope. I don't want to kill him. George Brewster? Yes, George Brewster. I know how it'll end if he doesn't stop. Stop what? Call the police, mister. You'd be doing me a favor. 
Since when have I got to do you favors? Well, why aren't you calling? I'm an Eagle Scout in good standing. I haven't done my good deed for today. You can't help me, mister. Stone is the name. What makes you so sure I can? Well, thanks for even wanting to. After that bad time I gave you. Bad time? That's the understatement of a year. Well, I was panic-stricken. He got me half crazy. Well, what have you got to lose if you tell me about it? No. Okay. Wait, wait. I don't know. I... I'm like a drowning man grasping at straws. Look, maybe if you talked to Brewster, told him what he's doing to me, maybe, maybe he'd leave me alone. <laughs> well, you never can tell. But I'd have to know what I'm talking about. It's quite a story, mister. These lights. Look at them. Bright as the sun, aren't they? Lamps. Overhead chandeliers. Look at them. I'd hate to see your light bills. Like some men need drugs. That's how I need these lights. Come again? My sanity depends on it. My very sanity. And these lights? It's a sickness. You've even got a name for it. Noctophobia, it's called. Fear of darkness. Fear of darkness? That's for kids. I... Uh, no, I, I uh, take that back. I'm sorry. Don't be. I quite agree. Kids. Or neurotic women. But in a man of my age, it's, it's quite ridiculous. Only when the day starts drawing to a close, when the night starts crowding in. Have you been to a doctor? Sure, I've been to doctors. They tell me I shouldn't feel too badly. Plenty of people with my trouble. A hangover from childhood. An illness. Like heart trouble is an illness. I'll take the heart trouble. Maybe you haven't gone to the right kind of a doctor. Maybe psychiatry could help you. Nothing's going to help me. George Brewster's going to see to that. What about this, uh, Brewster? He's trying to destroy me. With the strangest weapon of all. The strangest weapon of all. Yes. His weapon is the night. It was a weird feeling standing in Morrison's brilliantly lighted parlor listening to him tell me about his terror of darkness. A sturdy, healthy-looking man trapped by a childhood nightmare. I felt guilt listening to him like I was eavesdropping into a dark corner of his mind that was nobody's business but his own. And yet he had to tell me because he needed help. Because George Brewster was using Morrison's fear to destroy him. I was sent to Chicago by our company to replace Brewster Stone. Till he found out why I was here, he couldn't do enough for me. He even got me this apartment. Greater love hath no man. Then he found out what the setup was. He changed fast enough. How did he find out about this uh, fear of yours? Well, I'm telling you how. The other night, the two of us were working alone in the big vault down at the office, working on some old account or other. The overhead light, it blew out. Uh-huh. Well, it was so sudden, I, I couldn't help myself. I tried to keep calm, but... Well, it's like something tearing me to pieces inside. I, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't... Finally, I had to run. So he found out no, about... No, 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 he wasn't sure, but it started him thinking. Yes, I see. Next afternoon, he came over to my desk. He was jovial, friendly, like he'd been in the beginning. Saying we'd been at each other's throats long enough. Inviting me to have dinner with him that night. Right from work, we went to his favorite spot on the north side, a place called the Catacombs. I began feeling uneasy the moment I entered. How do you like this place, Tom? That's okay, it's fine. Uh, it's been a favorite of mine for years. One spot in particular, <laughs> the wine cellar. How do you feel about wine? Oh, I like it all right. Come along with me. 
I'm a wine man from way back. Uh, say, George, I wanted to talk to you about that little outburst last night. They have a different wine cellar here with a different temperature for each type of wine. I haven't been sleeping well, you see. And... Me, I prefer a Riesling myself. Well, here we are. Huh? The white wine cellar. We'll select our own brand for our supper. Here, I'll open the door. Yeah, this is a privilege only an old customer like me can get away with. Come on. Dark down there. That's why they've got this candle here on the ledge. Got a match? Why, well, uh... A match, Tom. Mm. Yeah. Here. Okay. I'll get this candle going. Good. Now, let's go downstairs. Uh, George, uh... You think we should do this on our own? Done it hundreds of times. Been coming here for the last ten years. Well, now let's go down these stairs. Then. Careful. Yeah. George, I was explaining about last night. The candle uh, casts funny shadows, doesn't it? You notice how cool it is? Twenty feet below street level. Here. Look, I want to talk about last night. I, I don't want any misunderstanding. Huh? It's just that I've been working pretty hard. Look, Tom. Would it make you feel better if you showed me you're not afraid of the dark? Okay, you can show me. I'll blow out the candle. What are you trying to prove, Brewster? Nothing at all. That's your idea. Where are those matches I gave you? You gave me some matches? Well, I must have lost them. It's not going to work, Brewster. I'm not insane, you know. I can stay down here until you're quite satisfied. Funny, isn't it, about the darkness? The way it seems to close in on you. The way you start thinking you can't breathe. I know, I, I can see how someone could... What's the matter, Tom? But this is ridiculous. Something so suffocating about a dark room. Stop it. Stop it. Only the heavy, smothering blackness. Stop it. Where are you going, Tom? Anything wrong? <laughs> Anything wrong? Anything wrong? I ran out of that cellar like a kid, like a... Kid scared to death, Stone. That was a rotten thing for him to do. Well, he's fighting for his job, Stone. He's not too young anymore. He can't start all over again, so we'll do anything. Oh, great. I'm sure he's told the people down at work. I'm sure they're all laughing at me behind my back. You don't know what that does to me. I can imagine. Today I found a new desk lamp on my desk, courtesy of George Brewster. Every day, something like that. Did you ask him why he's doing it? He won't admit he's doing anything. Says it's all my imagination. Maybe I ought to see a doctor. Or better still, maybe a change of climate would help. Well, I'd leave town in a minute. Only my future's at stake, too. Before I let him drive me crazy, I'll kill him. Well, I'm going now. I'm going to talk to this bird. Where does he live? Out in the suburbs, Lake Forest. He lives with his sister. All right, I'll give you a ring as soon as I've seen him. Mr. Stone, I hope you can do some good. Yeah. Oh, Say, I almost forgot something. What? Now, that gun you made off with. Well, I... Maybe uh, if we're lucky, we can talk the store owner out of pressing charges. I'll try it. That was a crazy thing to do. I was so desperate. Wouldn't have done you much good when they put them in the window. They never loaded. I'll let you in on a secret. If I hadn't known that, I wouldn't have been such a hero coming here tonight. I'll let you in on a secret, Mr. Stone. You can get bullets without a license. The gun's loaded now. Oh, oh, oh great. All right, go, go and get it for me. All right. Yes, I want to give it to you. It's in my bedroom. 
He started for the bedroom. And then it was almost like a comedy routine where after the big build-up, the punchline comes right out on cue. The moment he entered the other room, every light in the house suddenly went out. What happened to the lights? Take it easy. Oh, where's the fuse box? I don't know. Never had any occasion to use it. Besides, if it was a fuse, all the lights wouldn't go out. It wasn't you. Use your head. How could I do it? I'm getting out of here. All lights out, too. Stone. Well, I... maybe something went wrong with the central wire. But why should it happen exactly now? Wait, huh? The downstairs apartment. Their lights are on. If it was the wire... All right, I... all right. Let's ask them where the fuse box is. Oh, Mr. Morris. Uh, my lights went out. It, it might be a fuse. Where are the fuse boxes for these apartments? Out in the back. I'll get a flashlight and show you. Here we are. The fuse box is right here below our meters. Whenever the people from the light company come out, they have a dickens of a time finding it. Can you hold the flashlight steady and let me take a look? Wait a minute, Stone. Lower the flashlight just a little. Huh? It's not the fuse. Look at the master switch on my meter. Look at the one of Mrs. Graham's. Why, somebody pulled your switch down to off. Yes. Yes, someone surely did. Well, here, let me push it up. There. And look upstairs. All your lights are on again. That's probably some kids playing a joke. Now, how do you suppose the rascals ever found it? It's so well hidden. I, uh, I've got a theory that all kids come equipped with a special radar of finding things like this. Mrs. Graham... Tell this gentleman who used to live in my apartment before I did. Why? Tell him. Why, you know. He even got the apartment for you. Your friend, Mr. Brewster. But what is that? Tom, co- that doesn't prove he did it. For me, it does, Stone. For me, it does. <laughs> Morrison went around to the front of his house and up the stairs to his flat. I waited in the hallway until he came down again. He looked different. His face was hard and set. His eyes were like chunks of glass punched into the flesh. What are you waiting for, Stone? When we were so rudely interrupted, you were going for the gun. I've got it now. Oh, yes. Hand it over. I'll bring it back. No, thanks. Where are you going and what are you going to do? I'm fighting for my sanity, my life. He's never going to do this to me again, never. I can't let you do that. You're not going to have to. The minute you leave, I'm going to call every cop in the book. Yes, that's what you do, isn't it? Yes. And I'd better give you the gun. <laughs> this could become habit-forming. I dropped to my knees in the hallway, and then the hallway subdivided like something under a microscope, and there were two hallways, and then there were four. And then everywhere I looked, there were hallways. Morrison tried to push me aside and get by me, only it was a whole circle of Morrison's. I grabbed at his legs to hold him back and was like grabbing at a centipede. Then all the Morrison's in all the hallways brought all their guns down on my one poor head. And that was it, brothers and sisters, that was it. Feeling better, Mr. Stone? Oh, if I felt any better, I'd call an embalmer. Oh, what a business. I heard a commotion and I came out and you were lying here. Oh, this my head or is it a cantaloupe? Oh, Oh. how did it happen and where's Mr. Morrison? Oh, Morrison, Morrison, yes. How long ago did you hear this commotion? Oh, just a couple of minutes ago. You came out of it real fast. Yeah, I've got an iron constitution. Have you got a a phone? Well, yes, but don't you think you Come on, lady, grab my head, put it back on nice and neat, and let's get to that phone. (laughs) 
this is the fellow who called you before, Miss Brewster, about Morrison and your brother? Oh, yes. He's not there yet, huh? No, my brother is... I don't mean your brother. I mean Morrison. What? No. Is, is he... Oh, yes, he sure is. Now, give me your address, and the minute you hang up, get away from your house as fast as you can. Morrison's got a gun, and he's half crazy. Maybe we should call the police. Well, maybe we should, but I'm not going to. They'd throw the book at him ten years for attempted murder. I think I can stop him before he does anything. Oh, I can't tell you how sorry I am about this. Lady, you and your brother should be. The cab got me out to their Lake Forest house in less than 20 minutes. The house was on a hill, and a flagstone path wound round and round for a city block until it reached the front porch. As I ran up the walk, my head started rattling like a handful of pennies in a tin cup. I felt weak and tired. All the time, I tried not to think about what I'd find when I reached the house. And now I was at the end of the path, walking toward the front porch. A nerve deep in my throat started jangling like a burglar alarm. The house was in darkness. And Morrison was standing beneath a little porch light, his gun pointed right at me. You won't quit, will you, Stone? What have you done with him, Tom? He hasn't done anything with him yet, Mr. Stone. Huh? Who is... I'm sitting over here at the end of the porch. I'm George's sister. Oh. I didn't see you in the dark. Why didn't you get away like I told you? you I won't hurt her. It's him. He'll be coming along soon. George would never have done what he did. I begged him not to. To take advantage of a man's weakness. Well, Mr. Brewster is coming home. What? His car is stopping at the bottom of the hill. Now he's starting the long climb. Morrison, listen to me. You just sit there, the both of you. And I must insist that you be very quiet. Please, listen to me. Please. Please. Keep coming up that path, Brewster. It's a long, long way. You must listen to me. Morrison. You don't know what you're doing. Waiting near the porch light, the gun in his hand. George hurt you. He shouldn't have done that. Far below the small figure of George Brewster making a long, slow climb. You're going to kill George because he found out about your fear. But don't you see? George is afraid, too. Of bigger things. Of being 53 and seeing his whole life going down Brewster had stopped at the first landing to That's catch his breath. Now he was climbing up the path again. He was fighting. Maybe a hundred steps from his death. I found myself counting the steps. Why are you afraid of the If you weren't afraid, George couldn't hurt you anymore. Please, listen to me. Keep your voice down. If you try to warn him, you both die, too. Keep coming, Brewster. Yes, he kept coming. No more than 70 steps now. What is there to fear about the dog? The girl's voice going on and on. Nothing. Brewster getting closer. All it does is hide the world. Less than 50 steps now. Forty steps. Thirty steps. If you believe in God, if you believe in your own soul, how can you fear the night? What is there in the darkness that can hurt you? There's such peace in the darkness. After the heat of day is gone, rush, the tumult, the struggle, you can breathe easy again. You can let the tightness inside unwind. He's almost close enough. Listen to me. Please listen. It's not going to work, Miss Brewster. I'm going to try and run. Wait. Miss Brewster. Stay where you are, Miss Brewster. No. You must see me in the light. I tell you, stay where... Tom. Look at her. 
I didn't realize. I'm not afraid. What right have you to fear? Julie, is that you on the porch? What right have you to fear, Mr. Martin? What right? Oh, what a long climb. Must be getting old. Well, what are you doing here, Morrison? And who's this? Oh, don't uh, mind me. I just came along for the ride. What's this all about? I... I just came to... to say goodbye, Brewster. You're leaving? Yes. I'm going back and tell them you've... you've done a good job here. It's not fair to replace you after so many years. You're sure nobody scared you away, Morrison? Look at him, Brewster. Does he look like he's afraid? I don't know if Julie cured Morrison of his fear of darkness. Cure is a pretty strong word. But maybe she helped. I kind of think so. I do know this. It's going to be mighty hard for Tom to fear the darkness, knowing Julie is not afraid. For neither Tom nor I will ever forget what we saw as the porch light lit up her face. Julie Brewster, who did not fear the darkness, was blind. And now that part of the story they always print in heavy type, the moral. And don't smile so indulgently. Morals are very nice things. Some of my best friends are morals. <laughs> you know, seriously, Julie's whole life is a moral in itself. And trying to top it is like trying to follow Al Jolson with a mammy song. The best you can do is tip your hat to the fellow who wrote... Out of the night that covers me, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. He must have had someone like Julie in mind. Well, four o'clock in the morning, a stale cup of coffee, a tired sandwich, and a story to dictate, and I worry about my unconquerable soul. Ah, me. Give me a rewrite. Nightbeat, a new dramatic series, stars Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. Nightbeat is written by Larry Marcus and directed by Warren Lewis. Music by Frank Worth. Listen next week at this same time and every week as Randy Stone searches through the city for the strange stories waiting for him in the darkness. The stories that come out of the shadows to find their way into Nightbeat. As originally heard on February the 13th in 1950. That was Night Beat, and the name of that episode was Night is a Weapon. I was just looking over some notes that I've found online on Night Beat. This came from Digital Delhi, which is an interesting website for old-time radio. A lot of research represented here. But it says that Night Beat was not a juvenile crime adventure by any measure. Quite the contrary, most of the scripts from this series dealt with both contemporary and timeless themes, 
revolving around things like isolation, despair, the seven deadly sins, and some of these were interspersed with occasional satires and humorous stories. But irrespective of the plot, it was Frank Lovejoy's inherent basic humanity that really shined through each episode. Now, you'd have to imagine that Nightbeat's writing staff had to have been picking up on Lovejoy's interpretations of their scripts after a while. So, as much as we respect Lovejoy's talent, it's obvious he wasn't working these characterizations in a vacuum. Nonetheless, it was his subtle sensitivity that underscored each of these performances that ended up capturing the hearts of his most enduring fans of the series. All right, well, we'll have more Nightbeat in the future. I grew up dreaming of being a cowboy and loving the cowboy ways. Pursuing the life of my high-riding heroes I burned up my childhood days I learned all the rules Of a modern day drifter Don't you hold on to nothing too long Just take what you need From the ladies that leave them With the words of a sad country song Heroes have always been cowboys And they still are, it seems Sadly in search of And one step and back of themselves And their slow-moving dreams Cowboys are special their own brand of misery for being alone too long to die from the cold in the arms of a nightmare knowing well that your best days are gone picking up hookers instead of my pen I let the words of my youth Away. Old worn out saddles And old worn out memories But no one and no place to stay My heroes have always been cowboys And they still are, it seems Sadly and Sir John one step and back of themselves and their slow-moving dreams. Sadly in search of, and one step and back of themselves and their slow-moving dreams. Normally, this is the spot where we always have our comedy corner, but we're going to do something a little different this week. 
And if it works out, then maybe what we'll do is juggle some shows around and we'll have Comedy Corner one week and Radio Noir one week and and then uh, this new category. Now, before I introduce it, I want to say we're still going to have Gunsmoke every week. Just That's just my tradition and I just love Gunsmoke so much. So we're always going to end up with Gunsmoke, but because of that, and I haven't wanted to do too many Westerns on the show, we are eliminating a lot of really quality radio shows from the Boomer Boulevard era, from the uh, 50s and the early 60s. Some of the best radio shows were Westerns. So instead of having Comedy Corner tonight, we're going to do this. Two. It's really hard to imagine the 50s without westerns because westerns made up some of the the top shows on television and also on the radio. Not only was Gunsmoke big, but shows like Have Gun, Will Travel, Frontier Gentlemen, which we have sneaked a couple episodes in. Um, Also shows like uh, the one we're going to play tonight that features Jimmy Stewart. One of the best western programs that came on was The Six Shooter. And we have an outstanding episode tonight that you're really going to enjoy. It was first broadcast on November the 15th in 1953. This is Jimmy Stewart as Britt Ponsett. The episode is entitled Escape from Smoke Falls. (laughs) 
man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl. Its handle unmarked. People call them both the six-shooter. The NBC Radio Network presents James Stewart as the six-shooter, a transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Britt Ponsett, the Texas plainsman who wandered through the Western territories, leaving behind a trail of still-remembered legends. Now, Act One of The Six-Shooter, starring James Stewart. expected to stay over in Smoke Falls, but when I stopped off to see old Dad Somerset and found him all crippled up with lumbago, well, I, of course, he didn't ask me to look after his stock, but I could see he sure wanted me to, so... Well, a couple of weeks later, I... he began feeling better, so I started thinking about moving on. It was nearly five o'clock in the afternoon that day. The sun just spilled over the top of Eagle Mountain. When the buckboard pulled into the yard. Mr. Ponsett? Oh, evening, ma'am. Mr. Ponsett, I'm Grace Proudly. Oh, pleased to meet you, Miss Proudly. I've been meaning to come out and see how Mr. Somerset's been getting along, but I just never have a minute free time. It's canning season, you know. Yes, ma'am. Well, Dad's feeling much better. If you'd like to talk to him, he's no, right in. No, no, just say that I asked for him. As a matter of fact, it's you I want to talk to, Mr. Ponsett. Oh? You see, I'm president of the Ladies' Aid Society of Smoke Falls. Uh-huh. We're affiliated with the church and do lots of charity work, Christmas baskets and things like that, you know. All the best ladies in town are members, and we don't just take in everybody either. Well, now, I... Now, this I... is what I'm getting at, Mr. Ponsett. Tonight's our box supper and square dance. It's an annual event. Mr. Simpling always loans us his barn for the occasion. I've spent the whole afternoon helping with the decorations. Now, Polly Sullivan, that's Wade Sullivan's wife, she's chairman of the decorating committee, but since I'm president, I felt it was my duty to give her a hand. That's what made me so late coming out here to ask you. To ask me? Uh... A- about attending the supper. Oh, oh. No, well, I'm not going to take no for an answer. Oh, but Miss Proudly... To tell you I've... the truth, I... Well, I've already told folks you were planning to come. Oh, but you shouldn't have done that. Now, Miss after Miss... all, you're practically the first celebrity we've ever had in Smoke Falls. The auction starts at 7.30. You won't be late, will you, Mr. Ponson? Oh, but And Miss... one more thing. Would you mind wearing your gun? The men folks are especially interested in that. Get up, Sheba. Come on, someone. Oh, but, uh, wait a... 7.30! Wait a minute, Miss Proudly... Uh... Say there, Miss Proudly. Oh, dear. Well, after I gave Dad his supper, I washed my face and wet down my hair and started off for old man Simpling's barn. When I got there, Miss Proudly met me at the door and introduced me around... The only name that sank in was her daughter, Ellen. Pretty girl. I figured that when the box supper she'd packed was put up for sale, the bidding would be mighty serious. All right, everybody, we're ready to begin the auction. We don't want the music now, Wilbur. Wilbur! Now, just gather around the table here so you can get a good look at what you're buying. But remember, you can't judge a book by its cover. (laughs) Now, which one shall we start with? Oh, my, 
look at this one. Pretty pink ribbon and white tissue paper. Why, I'll just bet you there's a whole fried chicken inside this box. Now, who's going to make the first bid? A dollar, 50 cents. Don't forget, gentlemen, a pretty lady's company goes with the supper. I'll give a nickel. <laughs> now, Spud Hooker, you stop joshing. You know we don't take any bid less than the court. Now, who offered a quarter just to get things underway? Look at this lovely box. Just think some nice young lady spent the whole day fixing it up. And she'll be too tired to dance. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Twenty-five cents. Why, it cost more than that. The auction was kind of slow in picking up momentum. But when Mrs. Proudly started in to make the third sale, well, there wasn't much doubt whose supper she was selling. Ellen Proudly sort of reddened in the cheeks and tried to look unconcerned. I, I saw her give somebody a glance on the other side of the room, almost like a signal. Couldn't tell who it was intended for, but there were two fellas standing over there. Spud Hooker is one, tall, husky, about 25. He'd been cracking jokes and acting sort of like he owned the place. The other boy was kind of a different sort. He's thinner, shorter. He hadn't opened his mouth since I got there. Now, let's see if you can't do a little better this time, gentlemen. Here's the next supper. Oh, boy. My, it looks familiar. Oh, I guess I shouldn't have said anything, should I? Ellen will just about murder me when I get home. Oh! Well, as long as the cat's out of the bag, I might as well go ahead with the sale. Fifty cents. Spud Hooker bids 50 cents. A supper like this ought to be worth more than half a dollar. A little bird told me there's a chocolate cake inside. Uh, uh, 75 cents, ma'am. I've got 75. Now, what about it, Spud? You're not going to let Tom Leverett outbid you? Dollar. One dollar. I'm bid one silver dollar. Who'll give a dollar and a quarter? Dollar and a quarter. Don't forget, gentlemen, it's all for charity. Dollar and a half. Now we're getting somewhere. I'm bid a dollar and fifty cents. Bud Hooker offers a dollar Are there any more bids? Two dollars. You're bidding two dollars, Tom? Yes, ma'am. Three dollars. Oh, three? That's what I said. Well, now we all appreciate your enthusiasm, boys. But remember, this isn't the only supper you can buy. It's so the only one just... I'm buying, and I'll take it right... Four dollars. Huh? Well, all right, all right. $5. Now, uh, now, Spud, are I'll you sure? $6, Miss Proudly. You're oh. making a fool of yourself, Leverett. Ellen wants to eat with me. My, my bid's $6. 7 Now, boys. 10 Oh, you, you, now, you don't mean that, Tom. You can't afford $10. No, I mean it. Well, all right. I'm bid $10. Are there any more bids? Going once, going twice. Go ahead. Sell it to him. It ain't going to do him no good. Now, we don't want any trouble, Spud. Ellen's my girl, and she's eating with me. I'll take that box, Miss Proudly. Here's your money. Didn't you hear what I said? She's eating with me. Get out of the way, Spud. You're not man enough to make me move. Now give me that box or I'll take it away from you. Okay, Tom, you hurt me. <laughs> hold on there. Now, just a minute here. Now, hold this on. don't concern you, Ponsett. No, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't concern me. It just seems to me that there ought to be a better place for settling things. That's all. Uh, Mr... Mr. Ponsett's right, Spud. Let's... 
Well, let's go out. Hey, hey, where, where's Britt Ponchett? Dad Chalmers said Jenny was over here. Yeah, I'm Ponchett. Oh, uh, Mr. Ponchett, uh, Sheriff Tinsmith told me to find you. What's the matter, Jake? Dean Falk just broke out of jail. Oh. Yeah, yes. He, he shot the sheriff in the back while he was getting away. Oh, he did. Hey, well, we, we took him over to Doc Foster's, and he's bleeding pretty bad. He, he wants to talk to Mr. Ponchett before... Well, before he... I'll get my horse. You got here, Britt, before... Now, now, what are you talking about, Ray? You're going to be all right. The doc says you'll be back on your feet again inside of a week or so. I don't know what I was thinking of. Letting Dent Falk get hold of my gun while I was serving the supper. Must be... Must be getting careless in my old age. Now, well, you're not the first man to have trouble with Falk. He had a pretty fancy reputation from what I hear. Yeah, that's... That's why I had to see you, Britt, my fault he got loose, and I, I don't want other folks to pay for my mistakes. Well, what do you mean? I know this town, Brett. They'll, they'll get a posse together and start after Falk. Well, that's... And they'll catch him, too. But going out in a crowd like that, he'll hear him coming. Falk's a wildcat killer, Brett. When he's cornered, he won't give up. Pick off three or four of the posse before they can close in. Well, not if they're careful. That's the trouble, though. Fellas here ain't cautious. They're bullheaded. But but you'd know how to take him, Brett. No, I, I ain't saying it's your duty. You don't even live in Smoke Falls, but you could capture Falk without him having a chance to... No, no, to... I'm afraid you're giving me too much credit, Ray. Yeah, if I, you want I somebody can't... to go along, any of the boys... Sure, I know that, I'd but... be mighty grateful, Brett. The folks here have been good to me. Wouldn't like to leave them thinking that because of me, because of what I did, some of them was going to... No, 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 you better take it easy. Yeah, I, I, Just I, I, take I it easy. I know it's asking a lot. Falk's a... Good shot. A wildcat killer. Just... Now, Act Two. Of the Six Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponsett. Sheriff Tinsmith had been right about the town foreman of Posse. Hadn't lost any time. Spud Hooker was taking charge. I was kind of surprised to see that Tom Leverett was along. But I figured he and Hooker sort of joined forces for the time being. How is he, Ponset? Well, he passed out a few minutes ago. Maybe it's just as well. At least he's getting some rest. Yeah, well, we're going after fault. The other boys are waiting behind the mercantile. Uh-huh. Uh, looks like you got quite a gang. I ain't got no objections to having you go along, too. Not that we need you, you understand. Yeah. Well, you coming? 
Well, I had a little talk with the sheriff just before he lost consciousness. He, he seemed to think that taking out a posse after Falk wasn't such a good idea. What's he want us to do, let him go scot-free? No, no. No, Sheriff Tinsmith sort of suggested maybe one or two men would have a better chance of catching him. They can make faster time, maybe sneak up on Falk unaware. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, it's okay with me. You going to be one of the boys who goes after him, Ponset? Mm, well, I haven't exactly made up my mind. You better make it up faster. I'll take somebody else. Oh, oh, I see. Uh, well, in that case, I... Whoa, whoa, sir. Whoa, boy. Whoa. Say, uh, your name's Leverett, isn't it? That's right, Mr. Ponset. Tom Leverett. Mm-hmm. You want to ride along with me? Uh, what? Why, sure. Now, wait a minute here. I thought you said one or two men. Mm-hmm, I did. Well, we don't need Leverett, then. Well, I tell you, I sort of figured maybe you ought to stay in town, Hooker. So if Tom and I get into trouble, well, you could bring the posse out later. Huh? You're trying to make a fool out of me, Ponset? No, no, I'm not. Everybody knows I'm twice the man Leverett is. I can ride better and shoot faster and I'll fight him two to one. Mm-hmm. You want the credit for catching Falk yourself, don't you? Well, it ain't gonna work out that way. Come on, boy. I'll find Falk myself and I'll bring him in alone. Well, Tom, let's go, huh? Falk's trail headed west, up toward Eagle Mountain. And the moon was out, sort of a half moon, but it gave us enough light so we could follow the hoof prints Falk's horse had left. Along about midnight, we spotted another trail, fresher. It couldn't have been more than a couple of minutes old. It cut in from one side and then went on ahead in the same direction Falk was riding. Ah. You see that, Tom? Yeah. Looks like Spud Hooker took a shortcut. Yeah. You reckon he'll beat us to him? Oh, you never know. Never know. If he does, he might save us some grief, wouldn't he, huh? <laughs> You're not anxious to tangle with Falk, are you, Mr. Ponson? No, no. No, I'm not anxious to tangle with anybody, Tom. But I thought, well, you brought in other outlaws before. Oh, some. Some, not as many as folks think, but uh, I've never enjoyed tangling with any of them. Why'd you pick me? Spud's right. He is twice the man I am. That's shooting, maybe. Yeah. But there's more to trailing a killer than being able to shoot. You know, lots of times it's more important for a man to know when not to shoot, you know. Huh? Yeah. Fellow's itching to pull a trigger like Spud. Well, he's, he's apt to pull it too soon. And, uh, Hey, uh, look at that. The moon's going down. Yeah. We might as well get some shot eye. Whoa, boy. Who's going? Oh, you couldn't see the trail anyway. Spud won't be stopping for sleep. No, no, I don't suppose he will. That's another reason I picked you. I... I kind of... figured he'd want to keep pushing on all night. And, uh, doggone it, I... Guy, oh, along about this time, I just get tired.
soon as the morning sun began gray in the sky, we started off again. Hawk's trail was winding up the side of Eagle Mountain now. It was pretty hard riding. Tom didn't complain, even though I could see he wasn't used to it. Every once in a while, he almost slid out of his saddle, but somehow he managed to hang on. About noon, we reached Little Creek, and Falk's trail gave out. The other trail, the one we figured was Hooker's, it sort of milled around in all directions and then went off on a tangent. And we climbed out from our horses and got a drink of water. Ah, it tastes good, doesn't it? <laughs> it sure does. You uh, ever been out this way before, Tom? Oh, yeah. Not for the last couple of years, though. Mm-hmm. Any cabins around, place a man could hide out? Well, not that I remember. You think we're getting close to him? Well, he could have gone on using the creek to cover his trail, but he'd have to stop pretty soon. Oh? Oh, yeah. A man can't keep riding forever. He can think fault. So far, we haven't seen any signs that he made camp, you see. That's so. Giant cave. Hmm? He might be there, Britt. It's not more than a mile away, due south. Giant Cave. Well, you've heard of it, ain't you? No, no, I don't think I have. Well, it'd be a perfect spot for a man to hold up. Nobody knows for certain just how far back into the mountain the cave really goes. Some scientific fellows tried to explore it last summer, but, well, their lanterns gave out before they come to the end. Uh-huh. Well, it sounds like something we ought to see even a fork in there. Come on, let's go and have a look. That's the entrance there, Britt. Beside that slab of yellow rock. Uh-huh. I don't see any sign of Falk's trail. I guess he could have come up from the other side, though. Yeah, that's what he must have done. Huh? That pony over yonder. That clump of bushes grazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see him. Easy, Scarrow. Easy, easy, whoa, boy. You know, Jake Watson said Falk stole a sorrow when he made his getaway. Mm-hmm. Now, we'd better close in on foot. We tethered our horses on a couple of spruce saplings and moved into the cave entrance. It wasn't a very big hole. We had to sort of bend over and crawl through it. But the room on the other side, that must have been 100 feet long, 50 feet wide. The walls were sheer rock, sort of rainbow-colored, so smooth you'd have thought somebody had been polishing them. And then the light behind us got down to a pinpoint. He wouldn't be hiding here in the dark, would he, Britt? Maybe. He heard us coming. Somebody up ahead. Yeah. You got your gun ready? Uh-huh. Now, don't use it unless you're pretty sure of hitting something. If we start shooting, it'll just help his aim. Okay. All right, now back up against the wall here behind you. Pop! We know you're in here, Pop. You go any further, you'll get lost. You'll never find your way out. Hey, you hear me, Pop? You're wasting lead. You can't see us. We know that. You can't see me neither. 
But we don't have to. You've got to come out sooner or later, and we'll be waiting. All right, we're going to leave you now, Falk. We're going outside and wait. Hey, where you are? You giving up? No, I ain't. And I ain't alone. What? I got somebody with me. Friend of yours, I reckon. We're coming out together. If you try to stop me, I'll kill him. What's he talking about? He, he ain't lying, Brett. It, it's me, Spud Hooker. Spud? I, I caught up with him last night, but he, but he got the draw on me. Hold your fire, Brett. He means what he says. He'll kill me if you don't hold your fire. You, you've got to do what he told you, Brett. you got to. All right, Bob, come on. Start backing up towards the entrance. I don't hear you moving. Brett, please. All right, let's go, Tom. We backed out into the daylight, Tom and me, and waited for them. About a minute later, Spud Hooker marched through the mouth of the cave, half scared to death. Dink Falk was right behind him, holding a forty-five, aimed at the smallest Spud's back. I was pretty sure he wouldn't hesitate to pull the trigger either. Sheriff Tinsmith was right. He's just a wildcat killer. He had that stampede look in his eyes as he stood there blinking against the sun. Same kind of a look you see in a steer when the herd's shoving him along. He can't stop or be trampled to death. Take off your guns. Both of you. Take him off or I'll fix your friend here. Falk gave Spud a shove with his gun and he jumped forward. There was an opening now between him and Falk. The next thing I knew, Tom dived forward. Get out of Spud! Tom tackled Spud and he rolled over. The bullet missed him, but Tom was in range and he took it. Falk aimed to fire again and I managed to get my gun out. Bullet hit his thigh and spun him around. Then his leg buckled and he fell face down. He hadn't let go of the pistol yet. He started to bring it up. Drop it, Falk! For a second, his finger went right on squeezing the trigger, but... Nah, he just didn't have the strength. (sighs) Tom? Tom, you all right? Uh, Sure. It's hardly bleeding. I... I should have let Falk alone. I should have let you handle him, Britt. Well, I don't know. Looks to me like Tom did most of the handling around here. I mean, if it hadn't been for him, you yeah. know. It's... I guess I had you figured wrong, Tom. I never thought you'd be the one to save me, but... I wasn't saving you, Spud. Huh? I don't like you. I never did. And nothing's going to change that. Then why? I like Ellen. I like her a lot. Well, she's in love with you. If you got yourself killed, it would just hurt her and wouldn't do me no good. Ellen, tell you she's in love with me? She didn't have to. When she finds out what happened today... She ain't gonna find out. I'm gonna tell her. I'm gonna tell her myself. I don't want her to know. It's for me to decide. Now listen here, Spud Hooker. You do the listening for a chance. No, I thought you I taught you a lesson last night, but it looks like... No, 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 hold on, hold on, now. Now, I think we ought to get Tom to a doctor, don't you? If we don't, Alan won't have no way of choosing him, even if she wanted to. Now, come on, Spud. Give me a hand.
tied Falk onto the back of his pony and started off for town. I sure didn't know what Alan was going to do about Spud and Tom. Oh, you never know what a woman's going to do when it comes to, you know, falling in love and marrying and all that sort of thing. But I did know one thing. Uh, that, that picking Tom to go along with me, I, that had been a pretty good choice. Alan probably could do a whole lot worse, you know. The Six Shooter is an NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. It is based on a character created by Frank Burt, and the transcribed story is written by him. Mr. Stewart may currently be seen in the Universal International picture Thunder Bay. Others in the cast were Jeanette Nolan, Frank Gerstel, Robert Griffin, Forrest Lewis, and Sam Edwards. Special music for this program was by Basil Adler, and the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. And incidentally, a great many of our friends have written in to thank us for putting the six-shooter on the air. And a surprising number of letters have requested the name of the theme you are listening to right now, and where it might be obtained. Well, we're sorry, but it is music that has been recorded exclusively for broadcast, and is therefore not available for home use. But we are grateful, nonetheless, to all of you who have written. Your kind letters are always welcome. This is Hal Gibney speaking. Tonight, here's Celeste Holm in the NBC Star Playhouse on the NBC Radio Network. Boy, you talk about an actor that has a lot of heart. Jimmy Stewart is Britt Ponsett. You know, it's amazing. I, if, if you went and talked to an eighth grade a student today, boy or girl, and asked them if they liked Jimmy Stewart, they would probably ask you who. And yet, uh, when we were growing up, what a big, big star he was. And I think about some of the uh, actors and actresses from our generation, you know, the ones that are have been acting now for 40 years. Many of them got to star in feature films that had stars like Jimmy Stewart or John Wayne. It's a real legacy that they left. He was uh, someone that everybody loved, and he was so good in that show. That show didn't run long enough. NBC didn't promote it very well and uh, didn't have a sponsor. And the next year, it's my understanding that one of the tobacco companies wanted to sponsor it, and Jimmy Stewart did not want to have a tobacco company for a sponsor. So the show was discontinued, but... In interviews, he had always said that one of the favorite things he ever did was that radio show, The Six Shooter. And if you like The Six Shooter, we will have episodes coming ahead, and we will mix in some other westerns with our comedies and our radio noirs. and Maybe we'll even throw in a game show or two. I was listening to a, an episode of You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx the other day on an old-time radio program, and I laughed out loud, and I remember how much I enjoyed that when I was a kid on television. So maybe we'll do one or two of those in the future, too. Chester, uh, since we're on the subject of Westerns, do you have any good cowboy music that you uh, you might like to play for us? You got one? 
Okay, well, let's let's see what Chester has in store for us here. Cowboys ain't easy to love and they're harder to hold. They'd rather give you a song than diamonds or gold. Lone star belt buckles and old faded Levi's and each night begins a new day. If you don't understand him, he don't die you. He'll probably just ride away. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Don't let them pick guitars or drive them old trucks. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. They never stay home and they're always alone Even with someone they love Cowboys like smoky old pool rooms and clear mountain mornings Little warm puppies and children and girls of the night Them that don't know him won't like him and them that do sometimes won't Just different, but his pride won't let him do things to make you think he's right. The cowgirl and the daddy, yes, different as 
Then somewhere in between is Harvest Bristol Green and the beers that I kept sipping at the table. We somehow came together for a night of stormy weather. Now there's a little bit of class in this old cowgirl, and there's a little bit of country in the dandy. I was smoking David Wine He was suddenly 59 But there we lay The cowgirl and the dandy He was ski resorts in Aspen And summers in Paris I was country music Nashville, Tennessee He was ski resorts in Aspen And summers in I was country music, Nashville, Tennessee. you heard Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Mama Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys. And then we had a big country hit, which was also a crossover hit uh, back in the, I think it was the 70s. It was uh, The Cowgirl and the Dandy by Miss Brenda Lee.
that's the music that takes us back. Takes us back to the old West. To Dodge City, Kansas, the year is 1874, and we are walking up Front Street, shoulder to shoulder, with Marshal Matt Dillon. Along the way, we're going to run into Kitty and Doc and Chester and the whole gang on yet another episode of Gunsmoke. We have an episode tonight that was uh, first premiered on the 1st of January. So New Year's Day in 1955. And ironically, it's, it's about alcoholism. So you talk about an adult subject, well, here you go. And it's treated very responsibly. So I think you're going to enjoy this one. It's a dramatic one, and it's entitled The Bottle Man. City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. that stage supposed to be here, Chester? Oh, sometime this afternoon, Doc. They ain't quite sure. You mean they're not sure it'll come at all? Now, that ain't what I said. I said they ain't sure when. Oh. Well, I've heard of stages that don't come at all. Uh, gracious, you ain't very cheery today, Doc. Matter lose a couple of cash patients last night? No, I didn't lose any patients last night. I lost $50 at Pharaoh. Ah, well, what's $50 to a rich man like you? Oh, yes, which if you and everybody else paid your bills once in a while, I'd be a rich man. Hey, there she comes, Doc. Oh. Golly, I hope Mr. Dillon's on it. Uh, you mean you're waiting here and you don't even know he's coming? Uh, he'll be there. And with big Jim Kelly, too. Kelly? Who's that? You sure are ignorant, Doc. Ignorant of what? Thieves and murderers and scallywags? Big Jim Kelly is wanted for burning down a hotel in Wichita. Yeah, arson. Arson? 
No, Doc. I said he's wanted for burning down. Never a mind, hotel. never mind. Oh, but there he is. There he is. He's coming. He's coming. <laughs> Hello, Matt. <laughs> hey, he's all alone. Uh, maybe he shot him to save the price of the stage fare, Chester. Oh, Doc. <laughs> Mr. Dillon wouldn't do that. Hello, Doc. <laughs> Chester. How are you, Matt? Hey, where's Big Jim Kelly, Mr. Dillon? I don't know, Chester. You didn't catch him? Well, I got close enough to put salt on his tail, but he got away. Well, how in the world did that happen? Well, he, uh, outsmarted me, Chester. <laughs> well, what's new in Dodge, anyway? Well, Doc lost $50 at Faro last night. Oh, that's not new, Chester. Besides, it's perfectly legal. Oh, uh, you mean has there been any trouble, huh? No, sir. It's been real quiet, Mr. Dillon. Except last night when Cassidy got beat up. Cassidy? Now, who would beat him up? I hadn't heard of that, Chester. Boy, Cassidy's the mildest-mannered man I ever saw. Even in his cups. And he's been in his cups for ten solid years now, that I know of. What happened, Chester? Oh, that gambler, Bill Clell. Oh, he come here since you left, Mr. Dillon. He, he brought a girl with him named Flora. What about Clell and Cassidy? Well, nobody's seen it, but Clell admits beating him up. Well, why? Says Cassidy walked up to him, tried to club him with a bottle. Oh, I don't believe that. Cassidy wouldn't attack a wood fence. Is he hurt much, Chester? He don't look very good, but he'll be all right, Mr. Dillon. Say, man, I don't believe this Clell. There's something wrong with his story. Well, I'll go by there tonight and have a talk with him, Doc. But right now, let's go get something to eat, huh? Do you see Clell anywhere, Chester? No, sir, I don't. I guess he ain't come in yet tonight, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Look, uh, you go get your beer. I'm going to go over and say hello to Kitty over there. Okay, sir. But you come tell me when he does come in, huh? Yes, sir, I will. Okay. Well, evening, Kitty. Hello, Matt. I hear you came back empty-handed. Oh, how did you know that? Oh, everybody knows it. You know, and all the time I was thinking that nobody even knew I'd gone after a man. That's hard to keep secrets in Dodge, Matt. I've tried it myself. Yeah. Well, there's one I'd like to uncover, Kitty. What was this man Clell doing beating up Cassidy last night? Well, I heard it was Cassidy went after him. Oh? Took a bottle to him, they say. Who says? You're right. Nobody saw it. The way Clell told it, he was just as surprised as anybody. I have to admit, I kind of believe him, Matt. Oh, now, Kitty, you know Cassidy wouldn't attack anybody. Don't get me wrong. I'm not standing up for Clell. In fact, I don't even like him. Oh, what's wrong with him? But he's no good. I can tell by the way he treats Flora. She's a real unhappy girl, Matt. Well, that's no business of mine. But I don't like the idea of a poor, harmless drunk like Cassidy taking it from him. There's Flora now. You want to meet her? Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Flora! Flora! Pretty little thing, isn't she? Yeah, she is. Hello, Kitty. Did you want me? You got a minute, honey? I want you to meet Marshal Dillon. Oh. Are you the Marshal? I'm pleased to know you, Flora. Uh, why don't you sit down? Thanks. 
But I can't stay long. Mr. Clell will be in directly. Oh? You, uh, work for Clell, Flora? My job's to steer people over to his feral table and then try to keep them there. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, how long have you known Clell? All my life, I guess. What? Oh, he sort of adopted me when I was five. When my mother died. I'm only 18 now, Marshal. Well, that's mighty young. You uh, look a little older than that. I wish I was 10 years older. Oh, why? Then maybe I could get away from him somehow. Oh, please, don't tell him that. No, no, no. Of course, of course I won't. He married me last year. Oh? Oh, there he is now. He just came in. I'd better go. The tall man, Matt. The black derby. Yeah, I see him. I thought he'd be older. He only looks about 35. Oh, be done. There's Cassidy, too. Looks like he's following him. Yeah, he is. And he's got a gun in his hand. Cassidy's going to shoot him, Matt. Yeah. even hold that gun steady with both hands, Cassidy. I'm going to kill you, Clell. Put that gun away, Cassidy. I'll handle him. <laughs> That's just about enough for you, Cassidy. going to break every bone in your body. All right, hold it, Clell. Stop kicking him. Mister, stay out of this. You kick him once more and you'll wake up in jail. Jail? Why, who are you? I'm the marshal here. Well, then why don't you arrest Cassidy? Didn't you see him try to shoot me? I saw him. Now, what's the trouble between you two? Look, marshal, I give you my word, I never saw this drunken bum before in my life. Took a bottle to me last night. This time he's got a gun. There must be something behind this, Clell. Cassidy's one of the most peaceful men in Dodge. Well, I swear I never saw him before. I'll tell you one thing, Marshal. Next time I see him, I'm going to kill him. Chester. Yes, sir. Cassidy's still out. Get him over to Doc's, will you? I'll come by there later. Yes, sir. I'll do it. Clow, if Cassidy tries to kill you, it's your right to protect yourself. But don't do it with your feet. Cassidy's friends might not like it. And I'm one of them. Doc. Well, how you feeling, Cassidy? I'm okay, Marshal. Oh, you're so full of booze, you don't know how you feel, Cassidy. I told you, you've got two broken ribs. It don't matter. I've had worse. Cassidy, what do you have to clow for? Why did you try to shoot him tonight? Thirteen years of hard drinking is lovely to think about. It's bad on the aim, Marshal. I had to hold that gun in both hands. He hit me before I get it off. Why were you trying to shoot him? I don't like his face. Doc, will you do something for me? Sure, sure, yes, Cassidy. What is it? Make me sober. What? I I mean real sober. Oh, I ain't going to quit forever, but... I want to get sober for a spell. Well, I'm sorry, Cassidy. Medicine has no idea how to treat a man who drinks like you. No idea at all. There's nothing you can do? Nothing. If you want to get sober, you'll have to do it yourself. How? Stop drinking. Okay. 
I'll do it. If Marshall will help me. May he help you? Lock me up in jail, Marshal, and don't let me out for, for about a week. I, I can't drink that way. You, you'll do it, won't you? Well, ordinarily, I'd do anything I could to help you, Cassidy, but... Uh, no, not this time. Why not? Because you want to get sober so you can kill a man. Then I'll do it without your help. Oh, don't worry, Matt. He'll never stay sober long enough to do any harm. I never saw a man like him stop drinking yet. You never saw a man had a reason like I have, Doc. What is your reason, Cassidy? I'll tell you later, Marshal. When you come to hang me. Done. Morning, Chester. Ah, oh, where's the mails? Well, it's in, but they ain't got it sorted out yet. I'll go back and get it later. Okay. You expecting something important? No, nothing special, Chester, but uh, you never know. My. Sometimes I think we'd be better off if there wasn't no mail, no telegraphs, no trains, no stages, no nothing like that. Well, I wish we had more. And maybe we could find out what happened to Cassidy. He's been missing a whole week now. Oh, for heaven's sake, Mr. Dillon, I plumb forgot. That's the first thing I meant to tell you. Well, how, how could I forget that? I swear I must be getting old. What did it you... seems like every time I start... Chester, to... what, what did you forget? Uh, about Cassidy. I seen him in the street just now. You did? Well, where is he? I want to talk to him. He was leaning on that building right next door. Drunk? No, sir, he didn't look it. He looked plumb sober. I'll go see if he's still there, will you? Yes, sir. Yeah. There he is. Cassidy! Shh. Hey, Cassidy! Come here a minute. He's coming, Mr. Dillon. Uh, come on in, Cassidy. Marshal wants to say hello. I ain't got much time, Chester. Well, you got a minute, ain't you? Close the door, Chester. What do you want, Marshal? Huh? You had everybody worried, Cassidy. Where, uh, where you been the past week, huh? I've been out on the prairie, Marshal. Ain't no whiskey out there. Oh, I see. Well, you look fine. I ain't had a drop since I left Doc that night. How are your ribs? Oh, I breathe hard, but that don't bother me. Mm-hmm. I, uh, see that you got a gun in your belt. I have. I can shoot it with one hand now. Still after Clell, huh? You can hang me later, Marshal. It don't matter. But right now, you can't do nothing but talk. Why don't you tell me what this is all about, Cassidy? We're friends, aren't we? You was always a friend to me, Marshal. And I don't like to cause you no trouble, but I can't help it this time. It's just gotta be. Well, okay, Cassidy. You don't want me to help you, but... Uh... I'm going to do it anyway. You can't help me. Yes, I can. Now, give me your gun. No. No, Marshal. No. No, you've got no right. Now, give don't. Give me the gun. Hmm? There. Buy me another one. Chester. Yes, sir. Lock him up. Lock me up? No. You can't do that. It ain't legal. I ain't done nothing. To stop you from killing a man's plenty legal the way I look at it, Cassidy. All right. Put him in his cage, Chester. Come on, Cassie, and don't you try nothing. No, wait, no, you can't lock me up. Clell might get away. You want me to carry you? Uh, 
All right. All right, I'll tell you, Marshal. I'll tell you. Leave him be, Chester. Well, go ahead, Cassidy. Tell me. Who is Clell? Thirteen years ago, Marshal, down in New Orleans, Clell ran off with my wife. He did? And then how come he claims that he doesn't know you? He don't know me. I changed my name, and I only seen him once before. My wife told me she was leaving, and I watched him get on the riverboat. Clell, my wife, my little girl. Your little girl? Flora was only five then. Flora? You mean Flora's your daughter? She don't remember me. I don't want her ever to know that, uh, now the way I am. Promise you won't tell her? No, no, of course I won't. But Clell's married to Flora now. Uh, what happened to your wife? Yeah, they got married, but later I heard she ran off. She had to get away from him. I think she's dead, Marshal. I think she killed herself. Look, Cassidy, shooting Clell isn't going to help anything now. I ain't going to kill him because of me, Marshal. I'm doing it for Flora. I can tell. She wants to get away from him, too. Yeah, I know she does. I'm going to do it, Marshal. I don't mind hanging. I'm going to help Flora. Clell's done a lot to you, Cassidy, but there's nothing in the world I know of that justifies murder. I don't hold with killing people either, Marshal, but I'm going to do it. Cassidy, listen to me. If I get Flora away from Clell, would you be satisfied? How are you going to do that? Will you leave him alone if I do? I told you it's the floor I'm thinking about. The other thing, oh, that's, that's too long past. I buried that in a thousand whiskey bottles, Marshal. Okay, I'll see what I can do. Uh, do you have any money, Cassidy? If I didn't work on then, I couldn't drink. How much have you got? No, about $50. All right, give it to me. What? I said, give it to me. Oh. Well, here it is, Marshal. It's all I got. It's enough. Now, look, I want you to lay low, Cassidy. Stay out of sight for a while. Will you do that? I'll do it. But I'll be watching. It's better not take too long, Marshal. Chester. Yes, sir. Go find Kitty, will you? Tell her to get Flora over to her room and be sure that Clell doesn't know where she is. Okay, Mr. Dillon. Tell Kitty I'll meet him there in about an hour. Oh, and you better hang around outside somewhere, huh? In case Clell gets interested and shows up. She's here, Matt. Come on in. Oh, thanks, Kitty. Ah, hello, Flora. Is there something wrong, Marshal? Uh, yes, I think so. I told you, Kitty. I knew there was. Now, Flora, don't get upset. Whatever it is, I'm sure the Marshal isn't after you. Give him a chance to explain. Is it about Mr. Clell, Marshal? It's about you, Flora. But I haven't done anything. No, you haven't done anything, Flora, but I'm going to help you do something. I don't understand. Tell me, if you were alone, free from Clell... Where would you go? Oh, I tried to run away before, but he caught me. He beat me something terrible. Well, he won't catch you this time, Flora. Now, where do you want to go? Can you find a job in St. Louis? I'd like to go to New Orleans. Mr. Clell says I was born there. I'm sure I could find something to do there. 
I always wanted to go. Okay, here's a hundred dollars for it. Now that'll get you to New Orleans and keep you till you find work. A hundred dollars? Oh, Marshal, I can't take that. Yes, you can. Now go on, take it. Why are you giving it to me? Well, you're young. You've still got a life ahead of you. That's reason enough. It's no use, Marshal. Mr. Clell had never let me go. Where is Clell now? At the Long Branch Gambling. He'll be expecting me there soon. All right, then you'll have to hurry. There's a train out at 1 o'clock. That'll only give you about a half hour. But I can't go like this. What about my things? Go get what you need. Kitty will help you. Sure, I will. Come on, Flora. But if Mr. Clell finds me... I'll be at the depot. If Clell does find you, it won't do him any good. I'll see that you get on that train alone, Flora. She better hurry, Mr. Dillon. Stand a piece about to leave. Kitty will see that she gets here, Chester. Don't worry. Yes, sir. Hey, I thought you told Cassidy to lay low. I did. What? Now what's he up to? Guess he wants to talk to you. What are you doing here, Cassidy? I know what you're doing, Marshal. I figured it all out. Especially when I seen Flora and Kitty going back to her room. They're on the way down here now. I thought you didn't want Flora to know about you. I don't, Marshal. I'm going to stand over there by the building. I only want to see her leave. It'll be the last time. There they come. You better get going. I'm going. Oh, that poor fellow. Come on, Marshal. Take Flora's bag, will you, Chester, and throw it on the train for her? Sure. Give me your bag, Flora. I'll take care of it for you. Thanks, Chester. I'll go find your seat. I thought we'd never make it, Mass. Oh, you barely did. Well, Flora, we'll uh, say goodbye here. You better follow Chester. Goodbye, Marshal. I don't know why you're doing this, but... Well... <laughs> I just can't seem to say anything. You don't have to. Good luck. Goodbye, honey. I'm awful happy for you. You'll make out fine. I know you will. I kind of hate to leave you, Kitty. You get going. Train's about to leave. Go on now. <sighs> All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. You're a good girl, Matt. Yeah, she is. I'm kind of wondering myself why you're doing this. Well, I'll tell you, Kitty. Oh, you're about to leave. Now she'll make it. What about Chester? He's still in the car there. <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter. He's always wanted to go to St. Louis. Anyway. Matt, look. What? It's Clell. He's after her. Yeah, you stay here, Kitty. Yeah, hurry, Matt. Flora, don't you get on that train. You all right, Flora? He's dead, Marshal. Get on the train, Flora. But I can't. Come on, hurry. Go on, move. shot him, Mr. Dillon. I seen him through the train window. Yeah, I saw him, Chester. Now, here he comes now. Watch him. Yes, sir. I killed him. I killed him, Marshal. Here's my gun. Take it. I should have locked this gun up. You went back to the office for it, didn't you? I thought something would go wrong. And it almost did, too. I'd have stopped him, Cassidy. You wouldn't have killed him, Marshal. 
He can't ever follow her now. You're under arrest, Cassidy. You can hang me. I don't care. Only one thing, Marshal. Yeah, I know. Chester, I'll lock him up. You go buy him a bottle, will you? He's been sober long enough. No, no, Marshal. That's what I was going to say. I kind of like it this way. I ain't feeling sorry for myself no more. I'm through drinking the rest of my life. However long that's going to be. Cassidy. Yeah? Nothing. All right, come on. Walk ahead of me. Gunsmoke, produced and transcribed under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Leston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, Eleanor Tannen, and Ralph Moody. Farley Bear as Chester, Howard McNear as Doc, and Georgia Ellis as Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Another year of wonderful entertainment by Perry Como begins next week as Chesterfield brings you all the top tunes on TV. Don't forget to be on deck Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And as Perry says, don't forget those Chesterfields. Remember, listen again next week for another story of the Western Frontier when Marshal Matt Dillon, Chester Proudfoot, Doc, and Kitty, together with all the other hard-living citizens of Dodge, will be with you once more. It's America growing west in the 1870s. It's drama. It's gun smoke. Brought to you by L&M Filter. This is the CBS Radio Network. That was a good one. That was originally broadcast on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1955. And if you didn't catch it earlier, the name of that episode was The Bottle Man. May God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others. And let others do for you
Chester is giving me the high sign here. He is letting me know that we are all out of time. So we're going to pick up all of our shows and carry them back into the vault.
Well, folks, that's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't worry, though. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll do it all over again with a whole new slate of shows. And uh, I know that you're just going to be waiting with bated breath, but uh, I assure you that we will return. Won't we, Chester? Yes, we will. Yep, it's going to be that much closer to winter, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, well, that's all right. We have to go through this every year, Chester. We have to go through it every year. All right, everybody, this is Bob Bro. I am so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me.